every time I start working with someone, they're afraid because they feel okay. They gonna might what they're gonna do basically is remove me all the joy I have in my life because that's what they expect from us. And you see that feeling, that passion, that I know exactly what you're talking about because mm-hmm. I see that all the time. Mm-hmm. And when I was telling you food is healing, because I'm working with women who have a history of dieting, disordered eating, this mm-hmm. is the fuel. This is what I'm using, that energy. Mm-hmm. This is what I use mm-hmm. uh, for them to build, uh, to make food choices with confidence. I want mm-hmm. them to keep that in mind, that this, this it's possible. And I was, so, so, you know, I started to tell you about play, but of course, the first step is, you know, decreasing the guilt and feeling a failure. There is a lot of unlearning and learning and learning and learning. Okay, that was the Black Nutritionist. And did you hear that? I just want to say it again. Food is healing. Food is fuel and energy for confidence. And let's reduce that guilt and failure around eating your cultural foods. You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Yeah, that clip probably gave you a good idea of what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, everybody. This is your host, David Orozco, and you're listening to the One Small Buy podcast. And I am a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor. And today, I am going to have the black nutritionist, Dr. Kara Niamdiop. She is a nutrition expert, food activist, and nutrition coach who empowers black women with the know-how to better nurture their bodies by letting go of food, guilt, and shame like you heard a little while ago. Today, we're going to talk about her background and relevance in working with the black communities. She is going to tell us about how the systemic oppression lives in nutrition and healthcare. We're also going to look at how nutrition recommendations are racist with implicit and explicit biases and how the healthcare system perpetuates systems of oppression. We're also going to look at how cultural foods heal, and she's going to give us one small bite that black people can start to enhance their health. And folks, I am super stoked because today is going to be a great conversation, so I'm looking forward to you listening in. All right, let me look for my disclaimer. Okay, this episode and podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. This is not a substitute for medical, emotional, or a weight-inclusive nutrition or health consult for your specific needs. Please find a registered dietitian nutritionist or a health professional that hopefully is haze, intuitive eating, and weight-inclusive aligned and licensed in your state so you can get that adequate level of care. And be on your way to establishing a positive relationship with food. Okay, with that all out of the way, let's go ahead and get started with our interview with the Black Nutritionist. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome. I've got Dr. Kira Nyamdiop, who is the Black Nutritionist on Hello. Instagram. Hi, how are you? <laughs> good, good. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. I'm really, really stoked to have you on. This is going to be great. We got some great conversation coming on. I'd love for people to get to know you a little bit. Can you tell them a little bit about your background? Like where were you born and then come up to the current? I know that's a lot. <laughs> of course. No, I think it's a great question. So I am Kara. I was born in the U.S. in Lansing, Michigan, mm. uh, with a Caribbean mom and an African father. And I grew up in France most of my life until finishing my Ph.D. I came back to New Jersey in 2017. Um, so this is my story. I'm a nutritionist, known as a Black nutritionist on social media. Um, and yeah, I'm a foodie. I love food. Food mm-hmm. has always been an important way of connecting 
with my cultural identity. It's also a way where I express my creativity. Um, and so this is a little bit about me. So I want to know a little bit something here, since you did your training in France, talk to me a little bit about what you would see some of the differences. I know this is maybe not exactly what we are, are talking about, but I think it heads into a little bit of the cultural part that you would uh, mention a little while ago. You were in France and you got your education there, your PhD. What would you say are some of the nutritional or dietary differences that you can see there or that may also inform some of the topic points that we're going to talk about today? Oh, yeah, no, that that's a good one. <laughs> I think that there is a lot to say. I, I would say there are two aspects. So there is the approach to nutrition, the approach to food, that is, you know, the pleasure aspect of food, the um, honoring culture, because French has a big food culture. Mm. And so I grew up surrounded by that. And it's really, I think, the foundation of where I'm, I'm coming from. I was I was taught to respect French French food culture. I was I had culinary classes where I was taught to you know cook the you know the staple of French uh, the, the staple of French culinary. And you know, we're using butter, we're using you know fat. We never talk about uh, using you know or making it healthier. So I have that in the back of my head. Um, I think I understand that it's important to 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 have a sort of structure to it consistently that it's a social, it's, we need time to eat, you know, all that, you know, because French culture is not just about the food that it's in your plate. It's also about that relationship with food, you know, mm. how we use it to interact, how, so definitely that's a big part of my philosophy, I would say. Mm. And at the same time, uh, growing up as a person who is not a French French, because I have other heritage, I also witness, you know, how, you know, French people were, you know, French is a big colonial empire. Mm -hmm. So when you hear my program is called Decolonize Your Plate, mm -hmm. uh, my parents, they're both from, you know, my mother's Caribbean, former Caribbean country, right now, which still belong to France. Mm -hmm. My father was born in 1959, where Cameroon was still in the colonial empire. Mm -hmm. So I'm also very aware of what colonization is, how it impacts people's lives, how, you know, and how, you know, French people are really great at protecting their own tradition and culture, but they don't have the same respect for other traditions. And so I guess, you know, I'm in between those those two spaces and I would say it's it impact a lot, everything I'm saying. And when I talk about, for example, there is a term that, I, that is, um, I would say, I have a lot of criticism for using this term. I use the term white people food. People, they always come to me and try to lecture me about the different the European, the diversity of European food. And I would say that I'm very well, I understand very well the, 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 yeah, the subtleties and the why, you know, it's important to respect someone's culture and why also the anti-blackness, the, the anti-racism are operating the same way in everywhere I've been around the world. So the issue that the black community faced in France are really similar to the issue that the Caribbean people faced, for example, French Caribbean, and the very similar to the issue that the black community faced in the US. So I guess it really gave me um, a perspective that is unique, I would say, in, mm -hmm. in, the, food, in the food space. Is this the reason why you got into nutrition? Ah, not really. So, um, so you know, I grew up in a black family, mm -hmm. and in many black families, girls are raised to be very conscious of their bodies mm -hmm. and of having a rigid control of the food intake. And my parents, they were part of this, especially as immigrants. They're trying to, I guess, be integrated, understand how it works, how to be a good French citizen. I mean, and they, they've been a little obsessed about weight, especially my weight eating right. I know my mother has been on a diet most of her life. And I was even brought to the doctor at 13 to be put on my first diet because I gained weight too rapidly. Wow. Okay. So yeah, so this family obsession, it, which uh, with food, it paved the way to my career as a nutritionist. Let's be honest. I, I picked up on this obsession with food and body image. But then, you know, something happened because, you know, that that's what we do. We, we take from our parents and then we learned something else and I, and I did not enter in the nutrition field by the standard curriculum. 
my first internship was in a farm. I studied mm-hmm. agricultural science and food science, and it completely changed the way I, my, my, my relationship with food, actually. It completely changed my relationship with food because I was able to see how it was produced, transformed, before having it on, on my plate, before learning about the calories, before learning about nutrients. And so this is, I think this is why I'm here today, talking about building a positive relationship with food before focusing on, uh, you know, nutrition and nutrients. The relationship changed around food when you went into more of the farm or ag approach. What what changed? Was it from bad to good, from losing weight relationship to eating healthier or um, appreciating the earth? What was it? Um, because so I'm a food scientist. So for, let, let's take an example. Sugar is mm-hmm. not four kilocalorie per gram. It's an ingredient that has several functionalities. When you put it in a product, it can bring taste, it can bring texture, it can, you need it for browning, for the mild reaction. You And so this is how I view food. I don't view food. So I do protein. Yes, it does help uh, for muscle, uh, muscle mass, but I see it as something that's completely different because it helps, you know, it, the backbone at upper of the structure. I don't know how to explain, but I see food as fun- functionality and nutrition is one of them that is important, but it doesn't, it's not all of it. So that's, I think that's how it changed. And also, of course, seeing the people who produce food and understanding how it's processed because now it's a big, it's a big term processed food. I understand yeah. the value and actually the added value that processing bring to food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, yes, it definitely that I think it's all of this. And so um, I would say that I see food really, I see the multifunctionality of an ingredient and of a nutrient. And I don't only see, you know, its nutrient benefits. I, I think of that sounds such like a French approach to food, quite honestly. <laughs> you know, it is truly the interplay between you, the food, and the earth as well. So, my first thought went to well, putting sugar into a baked good, if, for example, you have something that needs an enzymatic reaction, or if you have a bacteria that needs to grow or eat, that sugar is going to provide that bacteria or that microbe the components that it needs to then do what it has to do in order for that recipe to taste the way it does. And interestingly, that is processing food. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. People don't understand that there's multiple layers of processing, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. No, food and nutrition are complex topics. Yeah. And because everybody eats, you know, everybody wants to have an opinion, but it's really, this is much more complex than how we portrayed usually in the media, on social media. Fascinating. Yeah. I've always loved the science, but it also sounds like you're really hitting on the relationship with food as well. And, and I love where the worlds, those two worlds meet. So I'm hearing a little bit of the background about weight, about colonization in France or around the world, which is very, very common, right? We've had it for several hundreds of years. Where then did the, the word or the, where did your title come from? What is the Black Nutritionist? So uh, as I told you, I studied food science and then I did, I had a PhD in nutrition and during my nutrition training, I noticed very early on, I say the first day, I think I started to study nutrition, that everything was centered around the superiority of Eurocentric food. And it was okay. I just did, I did, I just did what I had to do to get my PhD. Mm-hmm. And it never really bothered me that much until a year after I defended my PhD, uh, I went to the dietitian. And I saw how they were using the fruits, the science, the science that was created in my lab. And I felt the need to bridge my expertise in nutrition and my own food culture because it was not, I was not aligned with the white fruit nutrition recommendation that was given. I was like, this is not how I'm going to eat. And there were not a lot of resources available. I had to figure this on my own. And I did it for myself at the beginning. But after the George Floyd incident, uh, I decided that I needed to speak up again nutrition and the wellness standards that are shaped by whiteness. And this is how I decided to 
uh, create you know my nutrition program that I would have loved during my own journey. And so Decolon, I'm going to talk about the black nutritionist. Uh, so let, let's start with Decolonize Your Plate. It's a nutrition program I created to empower black women to nurt, better nurture their bodies uh, and let go of the food guilt and food shame to cultivate a positive relationship with food, improve eating habits and reclaim black food culture. But the, the black nutritionist, it was created because when I relocated in New Jersey and people start hearing, or oh, I'm a nutritionist. People say a black nutritionist. I never met a black nutritionist wow. before. And I, and I heard that, I don't know, all the time, like all the time. I never met a black nutritionist. So like, okay, I guess this is, this is what I am, a black nutritionist. But also, let's be honest, two other, two other reasons why I'm called a black nutritionist, because it's a political statement, because people never associate race and food, and it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I have a lot of, you know, sometimes violent reaction. And so it's it's a little bit a provocative statement, just saying the black nutritionist in the world we live in. And let's be honest, we are in a marketing world, SEO, people that look for the black nutritionist on Google, right? So it, it's all of that. Uh, and I think it resonates with people, the black nutritionist. I love it. I, I think it's beautiful. Uh, in our profession, in our national organization of about 100,000 registered dietitian nutritionists, we have approximately two and a half, not even 3% of our dietitians are black. I'm just talking about race only. Um, we have more Latinx uh, dietitians than we have black dietitians. So I get that perspective, but I really love the provocative approach here because I really think it makes people think a little bit because they're it's going to get to a lot of what we're going to get to with this internalized anti-fat phobia, internalized systemic oppression, internalized or uh, uh, systemic uh, internal uh, unconscious bias that we are not even aware of. And sometimes I would say explicit biases as well, but it really, really gets to get people thinking and it makes people uncomfortable, which is great because people need to get a little uncomfortable. You, you said something that I wanted to get back to. You said after a year of, of working in your lab, you saw how food was used and it wasn't aligned with, I believe you said, your culture or your beliefs. Can you tell me a little bit more about or give me an example of what that means? So just to give you, I'm a nutrition scientist. This is what I'm, I'm supposed right. to do. I'm supposed to provide the nutrition science for dietitian to use it with their yes. patients. And so, you know, I was in my lane and I let, and so I was doing my work. And so when I worked with the dietitian, she had, she gave me a lot of example of meal that I could make and none of them I was familiar with none of them. And I'm pretty open, like I mean, meaning I'm, I was familiar with them, but I never cooked them. She never asked me what I was eating on a regular basis. She just assumed that, I would eat the regular food that most French people eat. This was in France. And it was a shock. And I was like, so this is this is all this work, all this sweat, I'm all all those, all the work I'm doing in my lab and thinking about question, research question on nutrition. This is how black people are served by the field. It was, it was a truly a shock. And you know, my first intention when I when I entered the field, wasn't to work with clients. It was to stay working with experts uh, and pro doing new clinical studies and do what I do. But I realized, okay, actually, and so when I looked, who has the knowledge? Who knows? Because as you said, it's less than 3% Black nutritionists out there. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, okay, I, I <laughs> this is your, work, your job. This is your mission because mm. you need to, to pave the way uh, because it's necessary. It's it's necessary. People are asking for this, and it's um, it's a huge work. And I'm going to start. I try try to bring something to the table. I would say this is mm. yeah my contribution. Yeah, I, I I when I heard you say that, I thought the same thing immediately. I really never heard of the Mediterranean diet or the Mediterranean plate or the Mediterranean approach when I was growing up. That was never a thought. And all of a sudden, I'm getting my graduate pro, uh, degree, and I'm hearing all about it. And I'm thinking, Mediterranean diet? I mean, 
there's so many countries around the Mediterranean. What are they talking about? Because what they eat in Libya or Morocco is pretty different from what they eat in France and in Italy. And what they eat in, in Egypt is different from what they might eat in Spain. And I was thinking, wow, there's just there's, there's a lot of countries here. What are they talking about? And the more you dig into the research, it's just not there. But more importantly, I had a guest on not so long ago. And while I truly respect her and she was very, very good with her knowledge and, and what she brought, she did mention that I generally ask my clients to go with more of a Mediterranean diet. And I said, well, you know, I pushed her a little bit on that. I was like, what does that exactly mean? Because I grew up in New Jersey in a Colombian household eating Colombian Cuban food. So does that make me, does that mean that I'm not going to live a long life because I ate those foods? Is there something wrong with me because I ate those foods? Does that mean that I don't fit in society unless I eat those foods. So that's what triggered when you said that not aligned with you. I, I, my mind went through all of those, all of those scenarios in my head, you know, really quick. And I thought, oh, that this is really, really beautiful. But I, I want to get to something that's really important here, and that is your approach. And and so we kind of are hearing a little bit about why you got into this. Let's talk a little bit more about, um, okay, so you chose this approach because why? What's going on and why did it resonate so much with you? I chose this approach because, first of all, we can be colorblind. So, I mean, I have so many, so many different reasons. Um, Please say them all. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that the, the filament is colorblind and uh, and really white. And when we talk about different cultures, it's always coming from diversity and inclusion, which I respect because I, I'm 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 the diversity person mm -hmm. usually in the nutrition field. So I'm probably the first generation being the diversity, mm -hmm. and I never felt empowered. To speak what I what I to 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 share what I had to share, to say things that I wanted to share, I was and I know exactly why now. But and so I, and so I decided, okay, I need I need to do to be able to speak to to have the mental space even to research on this topic, and so I need to create my own table. I don't want to be invited to anyone's table. I want to do something for the black community by the black community centering the experience of the black community so i would say that's why for example i i, I talk more about decolonization that diversity and inclusion because you know i don't resonate with diversity and inclusion because i feel personally that diversity and inclusion is more about protecting white feelings than really doing the deep work Ooh, um, that, that like i'm that. doing mm. <laughs> so and this is my own experience when mm -hmm. I, and i think it's Everything is necessary, but this is, you know, my approach. And um, and then when I started to work and and start to approach this topic, I realized that the black community, uh, the the health state status of the black community, you know, the numbers are not good, but systematically they are um, shamed and they are told that it's because of their eating habits, because of their behaviors, because of themselves that they are this way. So I'm like, okay, so we are in a world where there's no one that understands, you know, black food culture and how to, you know, make it, make nutrition recommendations that are aligned with black food culture. There are a lot of health inequities that are coming from, you know, uh, systemic oppressions. And on top of that, and so black women develop, you know, a lot of guilt and shame around the eating habits around their bodies because of the, those standards that are that, that are taking white bodies, white culture, white tradition as a barometer. And at the end of the day, we are told that it's because of ourselves that we are this way. This is, I think this is a lot. This is, this is too much. And I'm okay. So we need to, and you know, everything is related, you know, the, the, the body standards, the food standards, the food inequities white supremacy, what's considered a good or what's considered a bad food. And when you start working on the topic, you realize, wow, everything is so connected. And, you know, by addressing this and by focusing on marginalized population, 
I was actually, I, would, I was more relevant, honestly, when I started, because when I started to, yeah, I was more relevant and actually I would, I would, I felt that helping more people, uh, because when you focus on the most marginalized, you end up helping everyone really, because everybody is affected by those issues, but maybe at a, at a smaller level. Yeah. So. Can you give a, a little bit more of an example of practical from a plate standpoint? How is it that, or compare uh, the standard nutrition recommendations or plating of a food as healthy or unhealthy and relate that to what a culturally black person would be eating and how that would be uh, viewed as negative or bad. Can we do a little bit of that comparison so people get a little bit of vision? Yes, absolutely. So a lot of clients told me that what I'm going to take a, a practical example that, you know, I changed. It was a eye opening when I told them that, you know, if they like, if they want to add vegetable on their plate, they could use, they could eat their color green. So most of them were told eat kale or were so focused on kale. And I told them, do you realize that kale is not healthier than color green? And I think that's a typical example where kale is positioned as a white people food. It's, it's not, but it's, you know, uh, race is a construct and it's positioned, marketed as a white other food that eaten by white people. And so people feel like in my community that to start a healthy lifestyle, they need to start eating those food, even if they didn't grow up eating those. And, and a lot of people told me they never considered color green. Never considered color green. So how is that possible? Because you know what's considered good in the nutrition recommendation and on on in the general population is what's coming from the white dominant culture. And what's coming from black culture is inherently considered unhealthy. And this has nothing to, to do with the nutrition content and nutrient content. This is, has everything to do with the stereotype that are associated with black people. Mm. And so, and I saw that for so many things because I have so many clients telling me um, that were told by their doctor that to, to stop with the rice and beans. So how can we possibly say that? And that's, I hear that all the time to stop with the rice and beans. I think that's, like, I'm not going to be too emotional, but it, you, you cannot be a health professional and say those kind of things, you know, when you when you know that rice and beans are affordable, nutritious, uh, and they are as nutritious as quinoa. For example, that's another example. Even if quinoa is a colonized, it's coming, it's a, a South American staple, but it has been, you know, appropriated with, I would say, European-American. And, and and now, you know, a lot of, I have a lot of Caribbean clients telling me, no, I know doctor, I want to work with you, but don't tell me to eat quinoa. <laughs> and they literally tell me this, don't tell me I can't, like I can't. And I'm which you don't have to. Nutrition is flexible. And we have that approach that there is the best way of eating. That's the Mediterranean approach. No, there are several ways of eating. And, you know, you need to find the way, the one that works for you. And if it's the food you grew up on, we're going to work around those. Another thing that I noticed is the inability to actually measure, let's say, fibers. I hear a lot, you know, uh, Black culture, we don't eat fibers. Have you ever cooked a curry chicken? Have you ever cooked, you know, for example, a jollof rice? The amount of vegetable we add in our preparation. So in the, in the American My Plate Guide, you know, it's always a little vegetable on the side. But in the way I grew up, the vegetable is in the sauce. Mm. The vegetable is in the sauce. And so, um, but who is able to see that? Who is able to say so? Actually, you know, because I know how to, how to prepare curry chicken. You have a lot of vegetable in the curry chicken and you can add more because that's what cooking is. And this is not, this is not whitewashing a recipe to say, okay, maybe you can add more if you're struggling with, you know, that steamed beans or that spin asparagus that you see on the My Plate Guide, maybe you can add additional veggies in the curry chicken and see how it feels. And that's cooking, that's creativity, that's com completely, that's honoring someone's culture. Um, but I would say that in my film, no one is really able to see that, to see that there is, you know, 
a lot of nutrient-dense food in Black food culture because the food that are represented are always the indulgent one, the one we eat on Sunday dinners. But it's mm. not Sunday every day, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. You know, when I was thinking of the rice and beans, I immediately thought about people in Costa Rica because as a Latin American myself, I thought about rice and beans as soon as you said that. And I know that rice and beans is a staple in so many countries around the world, in so many countries around the world, the beans might be different and the, the composition of the rice and bean in a dish might be different in different regions. But I think, of, have you ever heard of the blue zones, these pockets, populations around the world that have the highest percentage of centenarians, people that live to 100 and older? And I thought, well, yes, there is one in, in Greece and in Italy. So that covers the European, right? That white centric. But then there is another pocket in Okinawa, Japan. And then there's another pocket in Costa Rica. And there is also another pocket in California. This is the Loma Linda population in Southern California. And so these are the pockets around the world that have the largest percentage of what we call centenarians, people that live to be 100 or older. And... I thought of the rice and beans because I thought, who doesn't eat rice and beans? Could you imagine telling these people in these regions not to have rice and beans? Such a staple of so many diets around the world. And so I thought to myself, this is really, really interesting. A lot of people, you know, we get caught up in the nutrition messages. We get caught up in eating half your plate, fruit and vegetables, and a serving of whole grain rice. I never grew up eating brown rice, quite honestly. That's just not, I, I don't associate the flavor in my mouth with what I grew up with. It's not to say that I don't like brown rice. It's just that the way the flavor makeups are in my mouth with white rice is so much more delicious than brown rice. But I'm happy to have brown rice as a more nuttier type of food that is made up in a different way. Just don't combine it with my Latin foods. <laughs> exactly. We, we, we can have both. We can right. absolutely have both. We don't need to erase one to elevate right. another. And that's exactly my point. And also a lot of studies shows in terms of you know food acceptance and food variety that for someone to be able to expand their palate, to expand the food that they want to eat, then the strong foundation. And yeah, I would say that something good. that I yeah, that I noticed with everybody I work with, by actually focusing and recentering and focusing on the food they really appreciate and that they feel a connection with, they are actually able to be curious and, and want to try new food. And this is backed up by research actually. Um, and so the best way to actually help people eat more brown rice if it's if it's if someone decides that that's beneficial would be to help those people eat their food, their, their, their rice and beans. So, I love how you said the, the connection part. I really want to highlight that because I think that that really speaks to the importance of the relationship that we have with food. I often tell people that eating is so experiential. Every time that you're eating, it is bringing you back to a flavor of the first time or a time in your life when you were having it. And so if you grew up in a household that had rice and beans or had curry chicken in a stew, or in my culture, for example, uh, sancocho or ajiaco. These are soups that have a combination of different foods. These are the kind of things that strike an instantaneous flavor in my mouth. I'm eating it way before I'm putting it in my mouth. And so eating something is bringing you back to your culture and it's connecting you, even if you're eating it alone. One of the things that's happening is that it tends to ground us in who we are and who we were raised as and who we belong to and who we are seeing ourselves through. And I love that you are bringing this to the table. This is why I was so excited to have you on the podcast, because we really, really need to talk about how food isn't just filling yourself with sustenance and nutrients the nourishment comes also from the connections that we've developed throughout the years of our lives. And it doesn't always have to be 
only your culture. It could also be certain regions that you might have been have visited, or maybe a, a moment in your life where you had a connection with a group of people, where you visited someone, or maybe it was in a uh, a cafeteria in school one time. You know, there's a lot of experiences in our lives that I think you're really touching on here, Kara. I think it's really beautiful. I want to talk a little bit about the health, though, the health aspects of all of this and how the systemic oppression is played out in the way we are uh, working or treating Black people, especially in the United States. I'd love for you to give me your experience of what you see. So, for example, in the healthcare system, since you see the compare, you can definitely talk to the comparisons in one country or another. And in fact, right now you're in Senegal, so you can see the difference there as well. Can you talk a little bit about what you're noticing, what the differences are and how systemic oppression is continuing in that way as well? Yes. Yeah, so, wow, that would be an, uh, that, that could that's be a whole, whole other... <laughs> I know, that's a, a whole... Wait, <laughs> to be continued, uh, let's do another hour. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say um, I, I'll, I'll try to, to divide this in different topics of pillars. Okay. The first one is the messages sent by the medical system, the messages that are continually sent that this is health is individual. This is your fault. This is you are responsible. Mm -hmm. This is a matter of willpower. This is a matter of, of, of self-care. You know, everybody's using that term self-care, self me included. But our health is not a matter of individualism. We work, we have greater forces that are driving our health status. And I think most people don't understand that. The environment, who you have access to, uh, the, the preventative care, these shape your health status. So no, your NIN, especially in the black community where those messages have been internalized deeply, like really deeply, um, it's very important to say that no, your food are not killing us because I hear that all, all the time. No, the, the the your environment, systemic racism, white supremacy is killing you. Yes, absolutely, nutrition can be a helpful tool, but let's be clear on the on the possible possible impact on how we can help you. You know, if we're really interested in helping a community health, we need to address those drivers and not just food. So that that would be the first aspect I see. And then definitely access to care. So yeah, of course I grew up, you know, not I don't I grew up not paying for the doctor, like 20, 20 euros is a doctor consultation. You know, wow. <laughs> I go to the for I went to the I used to go to the pharmacy and never paid anything. And I arrived to the US, I paid a very big, you know, premium to have access to care and then have a deductible. <laughs> and then, you know, so many things that are out of network. It's so complicated. Access to care is a, it's not even a privilege. It's impossible at that feel. So yes, this is a big difference I see between France and, and the US uh, that care is not a right. It's not a birthright. And I feel like in France, it's definitely much more birthright. The other aspect is capitalism here. Even when people can afford healthcare, because it's a culture, they don't necessarily invest in healthcare. And that's something I've noticed as well. Me, when I arrived in the US, I know that a part of my salary would be dedicated to healthcare. Like it was, it wasn't even a question. But here it's treated like another another vacation, like people that have a budget and they treat, they put at the same level healthcare, vacation, house, you know. No, for me, like healthcare, it's non-negotiable. And for a lot of people or people that are my age, when I discuss with them, I realize that they put health, um, healthcare or having a health insurance at the same level, which is a, another a, a philosophy thing that I, for me, it's very difficult to understand. But it's, it's, it's education it's because health is really something that is part of, it's, it's a business thing. The other, the other thing I noticed is that um, People that don't want to talk about the price of things, so it's taboo to talk about the price. So you know, when I started my first, uh, my first med, when I I found my medical, my family doctor, you know, I asked her well, how much it does it cost, and no one can answer that question. <laughs> you need to call a number, the billing department, <laughs> and it's people are a little bit uncomfortable when I talk about the costs of healthcare. So we are supposed to pay, and we we cannot really. 
um, openly discuss about the costs. And I think for me, it's really it's difficult to really understand that because I want to know how much I'm going to pay if you want me to pay it, you know? Uh, that 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 are the differences, and so it's really difficult to navigate to navigate this, this system. Um, and something I wanted to touch on also is, you know, the idea that food is medicine, very controversial topic in our field, especially in the anti-diet spaces. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about that. I've been saying food is medicine for a long time, and then I stopped saying it. Now I'm saying it again. Okay, good. I'm wait, wait, I got to stop you on this one. Because I for a while because I'm my of my training, I used to say food is medicine as well. And I started realizing, holy shit, in the United States saying food is medicine is perpetuating the very uh, racism that I didn't realize I was pushing. And, And can you talk about why? Why is it that food is medicine is such a controversial topic because now you're saying you're bringing it back in. I'd love to hear uh, that difference. Yeah. So food from a pure biological standpoint, food doesn't work as medicine. Right. Because food, because you need to, so a nutrient, nutrient, how it works, you need to eat the same nutrient consistently very often for it to have a biological impact. But whereas, you know, a, a medicine you take, you know, you take it for Boom. five days and it's going to impact. So that's a big difference also, because I told you there are inequities. There are not everybody has access uh, to care. And so saying food is medicine is perpetuating the idea that it's individual, that you have your health, you, it's your fault. If you're not healthy, it's because of your individual choices. So that's why I think the idea that food is medicine is, you know, we need to be careful. However, on the same, the reason why I'm re-exploring that idea that also is really strong is I think it's, you know, in my heritage, African heritage, I would say, we, we view food a little bit that way. If you, when you don't have access, first of all, to a doctor, nutrition can have a bigger impact when you don't have access to care. Maybe, you know, um, impacting the way you eat can, you know, have a big impact on your health because mm-hmm. you will never have access to you know, and I, I think that I want to bring some nuance in the, you know, um, I understand how food is medicine is a dangerous statement, but I also want to bring nuance uh, because, yes, it's healing. Food can be healing. And when something happening in, in my culture, we're going to celebrate it around the food because there is a healing properties of the food, not only in terms of nutrients, mm-hmm. also that connection that we were discussing about, you know, that rice and bean that resonates with you, that healing when something happened. And so, yes, in a sense, it has some healing properties, and so it's medicine. Um, so wait, no. So then, what I I have to say that what I'm hearing is that it's not that food is medicine. What I'm hearing is that food is healing. Yes, food is healing. Ah, uh, okay. Food is All healing. right. I love it. I love. I love. I'm so gonna steal that. By the way, <laughs> I think I'm gonna. <laughs> I think I'm gonna make an Instagram reel of it. I'm like fucking genius here holy shit this is really good i really think that that is that really is touching on what you're meaning yeah i I, because i i do believe i hear what you're saying it's faulting people for not eating something and therefore it's their fault that they're sick whether they have diabetes or high blood pressure or hyperlipidemia or you name it any other cardiovascular disease that is chronic right and so therefore, oh, there you go. It's their fault. They're not eating that way. People don't even realize how difficult the access not only to healthcare is, but the access to food might be as well. I love what you're doing on Instagram. And I think that you, you probably are a little bit controversial, aren't you? Um, I am. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about that. What's going on in Instagram? Well, talk a little bit about who you are on there and what you're doing, what kind of reels you're, you're, you're putting out there. So, yeah, so, you know, I told you I decided at some point that I need to work with people to, to go there, to talk to people, to talk directly to them, to say what I have to say, because from my place as a scientist, there was a disconnect between what the science I was doing and what dietitians were prescribing or, you know, recommending to the uh, clients. And so I decided, okay, I need to talk, I need to be listened. And where are my people are? They're on social media. And where also the people sharing all those, I would say, toxic messages around food and body, they are also on social media. This is the place to be. So if I want to reach and if I want to be listened, this is where I need to communicate. 
which was honestly a big challenging for me because, you know, people, they see my page, they say, oh yeah, you're doing reels, you're so funny, everything, but they don't imagine, you know, the way I'm coming. I used to, you know, I write publication for, you know, critical journal of food science and nutrition. This is not what I'm supposed to do. It was, there was a learning curve. And so I decided to, okay, you need to have a clear message and share it to understand that they don't have to give up who they are. They don't have to give up their culture. Their food is as healthy as um, the Western equivalent. And honestly, it's easy because, you know, using the images and, you know, it's so, I feel the double standard is so obvious uh, when I share it, you know, when I just share plates, when I just share, you know, when I show one plate and then another one and you're like, why, why I never considered my food healthy? And I, and I have the same question. And so um, I decided to, you know, to build up that platform. And I remember I, I'm, I also decided to use our language that is understood by not clinical language, not science language, the way we talk about food in our everyday life. And I took that position and I also decided to embrace my political stand that food and race are, they are related. We need to, to address the anti-blackness, the in-and-run anti-blackness of nutrition standards, the way we view food, the way we view bodies. And immediately, you know, I got a positive feedback immediately. My page started to grow uh, and I, I was able to build a community. So it's social media, so it's a virtual community. But I would say that they're really active and it's just, it's a, people are passionate about that, whether it's positive or negative. So when people love, love, uh, see my page, they love it or they really hate it. They hate it because they're like, how calories races? No, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and by the way, we don't eat calories. We eat food. Food has calories, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a little yeah, bit more complicated. Com yeah. It would be too complicated. You know, we, on social media, the difficulty is there's no nuance. Mm. So it's food, race, or extremely nuanced topic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, being able to, so I had to, you know, simplify the message but people who want to understand understand very well what I'm what, what I'm saying and mm. resonate with it not only mm. because um, there is also that thing I heard also during my curriculum black people are not interested in, interested in health they're more interested or you know that slim slim uh, slim curve that 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 you know slim fat figures and you you can also read it in if you read papers on body image among black women. I see that all the time on papers by scientists that, you know, black, the black community is not so health oriented. They're more interested in, you know, features, you know, mm -hmm. and this is, you know, just because you don't know how to communicate with the community doesn't mean that they're not, it just means they're not interested in you, what you're talking about because you haven't found the word and the way of speaking to them. And that's also, you know, what I also was able to discover during my journey uh, when I was on social media and I was like, really, because when I see the, the comment and DM I receive every day, people telling me that, you know, they've been, you know, they were desperate, they've been trying so many things. And now, you know, finally they understand that maybe they've been set, set up for failure because that, that's why I'm trying to share on my page. You're set up for failure. You have everything you need in you. You just need a little bit of help, a little bit of support maybe. Uh, but you trust your intuition, trust your ancestors. They, they, they had it right in the first place. Maybe we can cook a little bit more. We can add ingredients. We can do so many things. But, you know, you have a strong foundation and your culture is an asset. It is not, it is not something to be ashamed of. It's an asset because when you've been exposed to different cultures, whether you want it or not, to the Western part, and you have a second, you are first generation, second generation, and you've been exposed to another culture, you have more option in your, automatically you have more option. So you should be succeeding in nutrition better than anyone. And so you need to be clear. You need to, to get that confidence. And now, yes, I can use my technique. I, we can help you. And maybe the other thing is more education, but you you can do it from a place of acceptance and pride, and not from a place of shame. And uh, I don't know, yeah, not from a place of shame. I love that. I I love how you're saying culture is an asset. I'd love for you to talk about how 
or what are some examples of cultural approaches to eating healthy and what that means? Yeah. So very often, um, so the first, the first cultural approach I use with my client is that, okay, we're going to focus on the food you grew up eating and the food you really enjoy. No filter. I would think that the really simple approach, what do you like? What do you grow up eating? That sounds so simple, but actually very few nutritionists ask that question. And we know when I ask that first question, like, oh, wow, I work with thousands, uh, I work with two, three dietitians in the past, but never, no one ever asked me this. What do I like? So I would say this is really simple. Anyone can use it. What do you like? And, you know, how, you know, how, Let, let's see. And the second thing I do a lot, um, because a lot of, because no one ever was ever interested in our culture, in the food science piece, you know, when you eat Western, when you eat more of a Western diet, you have so many solutions on the market to eat in a quick way in 30 minutes. And time is a problem. And because us, no one really, no food scientists, has, or they're trying now, but spend time to, you know, trying to help us cook uh, in, a, in a way. We're really focusing on, on things, on spices and ingredients they can integrate on, in their routine. Mm. Let's say, you know, I would take an example of jerk chicken, which is, you know, I love a spice that I love. How can you have the same emotion while eating a, a dish? So jerk chicken takes time to prepare. No one has, has time to eat that during the week. But if you take the spices and you put it in a pasta sauce and it became a, a jerk, you know, a, a Alfredo jerk, mm. and it's going to trigger the same emotion mm. and it's going to take you 30 minutes to cook. You know, so I work on that. And also, for example, I love, I play a lot with meal planning. So, you know, a lot of people have different, my method for meal planning is centered around culture. So let's say I got to have a a Caribbean Monday and African Friday. Uh, And so by, by, by putting a theme and that are cultural and that are resonating with my client, they're able to build around their culture and we work together to find ways and systems so that they can do that in 30 minutes or less. I love this. This is great. I have, it reminds me of a client I had not so long ago and she, her family is from the Dominican Republic. She was born here, but she grew up in her family, very similar to myself. I grew up in a Colombian family. So there was a lot of foods that she grew up eating. And when she moved to Atlanta recently and it was very difficult for her. And that was one of the things that I did as well. I said to her, what was it that you enjoyed eating growing up? What are the kind of foods that you like? And she started off telling me foods that she's been heard she should be eating. And I said, wow, that doesn't sound like Dominican food. And she goes, oh, you're talking about like at home? And I said, yeah. And she lit up as soon as I, I said, yeah. She was like, oh, and then she just rambled on all of these different foods. And I'm like, oh, I don't even know that one. Oh, that's great. I started taking copious notes. I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And she, you can see she was lit up. I'm like, do you know, do you realize how good you feel? She's like, wow, I've never felt like this before. I mean, we did every single thing that you said, creating plates around your culture. What is the food that you like? Meal planning with cultural food without even saying any of that right in that one session. It was just, she just went on. She's like, Oh, I'm thinking of this plate. I'm thinking of that plate. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And see that feeling because people, every time I start working with someone, they're afraid because they feel okay. They're gonna might what they're gonna do basically is remove me all the joy I have in my life because that's what they expect from us. And you see that feeling, that passion that I know exactly what you're talking about because mm-hmm. I see that all the time. Mm-hmm. And when I was telling you food is healing, because I'm working with women who have a history of dieting, disordered eating. This mm-hmm. is the fuel. This is what I'm using, that energy. Mm-hmm. This is what I use mm-hmm. uh, for them to build, uh, to make food choices with confidence. I want mm-hmm. them to keep that in mind, that this, this is possible. And I was, so, so, you know, I started to tell you about play, but of course, the first step is, you know, decreasing the guilt and feeling of failure. There is a lot of unlearning and learning and learning and learning. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, this yeah. is how it works. Wow, this is great. This is great. All right. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about uh, your program, Decolonize Your Plates. Uh, I know that that's on your Instagram. Talk to us about uh, what it is in general, and then sort of maybe 
a 30,000 foot view of what the program outline sort of is and where people can find it. Yeah, so it's so the, the decolonizer plays an attempt to really bridge together the cultural, political, and technical aspect of nutrition mm. to help Black women better nurture their, their bodies. And I would say, so as I was saying earlier, the first step is about uh, uh, realizing that you've you've been setting you the nutrition standard of setting Black women up for failure. And, and it's about defining what better nurturing the body would mean, defining that by ourselves and not necessarily. So, you know, for a lot of people working with a nutritionist is losing weight. I'm, I'm weight centric, I'm weight neutral. So what would it mean to better nurturing the bodies? What are the soccer practices they would like to develop? So, um, you know, it's a lot of learning uh, around food and, and body. And then as a, as a second step, is by providing, I provide tools and strategies to, to build a healthy relationship with food and really uh, implement this in our ev- everyday life and the program. So there are different aspects. So the first one is about really, um, yes, yeah, so un- un- learning and un- understanding the what, you know, their approach wasn't serving them the best way. Um, it's about also a lot of people are focused on, let's say, portion control that they don't necessarily need to control, that there's different between being in control and in charge. You're in charge and you can, let's say, be in charge uh, and reconnect with your hunger, fullness, you know, and understanding that it's also, there's a lot of inequities in being able to be connected with those uh, body cues because white supremacy or influencing your ability and when you've learned at a very young age that you will be your body was worth one, it's gonna be hard to be able to trust those body cues. Um, and then of course we talk about, I have a, a, a module in my program called the food and flavors of the African diaspora. What I talk about the different aspect because in my program, you know, it's not, I have Caribbean women or, mm-hmm. women who are black American, African-American who are interested in, you know, because the food from the African diaspora, they have a common foundation mm-hmm. and they're also ex- interested in exploring those and opening their palate to different flavors of the African diaspora. So I spent a little bit of time talking about these, the history um, and, and making sure then when we start talking about more the nutrition piece and how they can really implement this in the week, in the way they eat on a weekly basis, it makes sense. And they're not, that they, they don't have um, barriers to eat because they don't want to eat white rice, for example, because they're afraid of, of white rice. So. So I would say that my program, it's there is a nutrition education because they have access to my course that I created because I realized there was no book talking about those, those things in the way I wanted to talk about. There is weekly coaching calls because I feel, especially when I work with women struggling with disordered eating, there is a need of a lot of support. There is a lot of support needed and they need to, before being able to trust themselves and to be independent, which is my goal. Um, they need to listen over and over again, and they need to understand. And there is a community aspect because I do think that um, even in the way we traditionally work in the Black community, we're communal people, and understanding that you are not alone, that there is a, you know, you're not alone feeling stressed about how you eat, feeling ashamed of how you eat, feeling like you know, you know nothing. Um, and if you are in community with other women who feel the same way and who are on the same journey, it's going to unlock something and it's healing. I would say being in community with Black women is healing in itself. And so I, I've kind of combined those three aspects so that we can, you know, to create a safe space for mm. us to discuss about those things that we never talk about. Even in the eating disorder field, we don't talk about how the messages we heard from our African parents that are very specific are actually uh, the, with the foundation of disordered eating and, and, and eating disorders and that, you know, celebrating the culture is also sometimes saying that setting boundaries with some aspect of the culture that we don't want to perpetuate. It's also breaking cycles. So, you know, so much, um, the, I designed my program to, to provide the safe place to do that deep work and at the same time, improving habits. So just from a, a practical standpoint, this is a cohort-led cohort uh, program. This is not an online course that they take 
uh, separately. So you've got a group of people who are taking this course on a regular, uh, on a, re- a weekly basis or something like that. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's a group program, a three month group program. Three months. Um, okay. It's a three month group program and uh, they have access to the course, of course, but also the support and, mm. and the, and the community. community. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm, beautiful. I love it. I think that that is so important because the support aspect is exactly what is needed in health. And a lot of people don't realize we're all doing this in our own siloed way, just like physicians are. And that's a very big aspect that's missing is that community component because, you know, it takes a village is the saying, right? It doesn't just take a village to raise a child. It takes a village to support a person, to support a community. And so that's where the strength comes from, right? I love that you have that you know, well-rounded approach. You're getting the education. You're getting the weekly sessions with you one-on-one. You're also getting the community aspect as well and the support. I love it. I think it's great. I'm doing something very similar. I have a course. It's a cohort group course. It's called Get Unstuck. And I have a community that we're building as well. And we're launching it in August as well. And we're looking at that continuation, what level and what uh, how we can use people within the community to support the people coming into the community and vice versa, as well as having that one-on-one approach. We're even adding a little gamification to it as well, like incentivizing through tokenization, incentivizing through uh, accomplishments, uh, uh, you know, attendance, uh, helping one another, uh, supporting the group in one way or another. You know, I think that there's a lot that's there that's really, really important. I love what you're doing. Yeah, and, and I would say that it's really challenging. So that I love what what I'm hearing. But when you know, I started with a simple idea, and then you know, you always want to you want to do more. I want also to be more accessible, and I want also to be able to live from from this. And there's so much going on, and so much element that goes into the programming of a program like this and it's a beautiful journey but it, it does take time yes it does it does well I, uh kara i can talk with you for forever on all of this is so good such good juicy stuff but i do know <laughs> that um your time is very precious and i greatly appreciate you taking the time to be with us today i do want to ask one other question well maybe two i got a surprise one but the last one or the second to the last one is what would be one small message or one more one small takeaway that you would love listeners to start doing going forward i would like them to understand that the balance they're looking for will not come from depriving their body, will not come from removing things that they love. That balance will come from actually, um, it will come from acting in their life, embracing who they are. Um, because, and I, and I take an example, the word moderation that I reclaimed in my program it's it's really a diet term and people they say well I want moderation I eat too much I eat too much I eat too much and they think that by you know not eating the food they enjoy not uh buying ice cream not eating the jollof fry that their mother that they grew up eating that's how they're going to build moderation but you know the moderation is coming from actually putting that in your life and embracing it and so I think that's what I would people to understand um I love it. Celebrate their whole self. Yeah. I love it. It's not as much of taking out as much of including. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I I love what you're saying about moderation. I mean, we hear it all the time. Oh, I should eat in moderation. Like, okay, but that doesn't mean that you exclude the things that you enjoy growing up. (laughs) I mean, that is what you moderate as well. (laughs) Exactly. I I love it. I love it. I think it's beautiful. All right. Now I've got a fun question for you that I'm surprising with you uh, or surprising you with. If you were stranded on a desert island and <laughs> you had, you can choose, this is your last meal and you could choose anything that you wanted, what would it be? I think it would be, so yeah, I, it definitely a meal I grew up eating, so bukit. So bukit is a fried, it's from Caribbean, French Caribbean, very specific, very, you can't find that everywhere. Can you spell it? But can you spell it? B O K. I T E. Okay. But we have different version. It's a fried bread. It's a fried bread. Okay. 
and okay, inside that's great. <laughs> and inside you put like you know we usually put chicken you can put eggs you can put onion and sauces and it's a street food and you know my mother was was making that for a birthday or you know for my wedding she she did that you know it's really a celebratory thing and that's what I I this is you know when I see when I see she's doing this I'm like oh my god it's gonna be the best day <laughs> and that's, this is what I want people going on the desert island. <laughs> wow, I really appreciate you bringing that. Boquit, I'm going to look it up. I love hearing that. It sounds to me like an empanada almost. It's yeah. really similar. It's actually, you know, when you start, you know, you realize that every culture yeah. uh, has a has a version of it, but this is... This is yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I made empanadas for Thanksgiving last year. We usually make them almost every year. So I love this. I love, I'm going to totally look this up. I'm going to cook it. <laughs> this is great. Well, Dr. Kara, thank you so much for all of this. This is fantastic. Uh, again, I can talk to you forever on all of this. And I'd love for you to just tell people where they can find you. So they can find me for now on the at Black Nutritionist on Instagram. And from there, there is a link in bio where they can access, uh, you know, they can write me emails. I also developed an email list to share newsletter weekly. Um, and I will be working on it because I know it's very important. Yeah, and the website. Oh, that's that's such a tough one. <laughs> um, okay, great. I will make sure to put all of those links or that link definitely in our show notes and more. And I just want to, again, thank you so much for being here. I greatly appreciate you taking your time all the way from Senegal, which is so cool. <laughs> um, thank, you. thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. Woo! That was sizzling. I loved it. Great conversation there. And I, boy, could have talked forever about this. I so resonated in so many ways being Latino myself I hope that helped you. That sure, sure helped me as well. Hey, folks, you know, one of the things that was also important to me as I was thinking through and listening and editing this was how culture is the identity within us. It's part of the community that we belong to. And so I just wanted to say that's one of the main things that we are doing at Orozco Nutrition. We are getting ready to put together a fantastic community this is going to be a community membership where you are going to get peered learning, where you're going to have that support, you'll get resources, you'll have Ask Me Anything weekly sessions, weekly discussion boards, there'll be an online community hub where you can network with other people, work together with us, be on front of the line for appointment dates, there is so much more that we've got. Cooking demos, get-togethers, meetups, hikes, walks, fitness. Oh, man, I'm telling you, it's going to be great. Hit us up. Check us out at OrozcoNutrition.com. We'll have a lot more information for you there. Hey, and in the meantime, I'd love for you to hit me with a stars and review rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Man, I'm telling you, those ratings and reviews are key for us. So I appreciate you doing that. Hey, I also appreciate you for listening in. Thank you so much. And to my team at Orozco Nutrition, Ginny Langdon, Reagan Perkins, Jennifer Baugh, for helping me put this show together. All right, folks, remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Until next week, see you later. Oh, yeah.